This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. All right, everybody, August 15th, 2022. Welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. It is so good to have you with us. Another bright, sunny day here in Southern California. And this is part two, part two of our Transcendent Deconstruction Series. And today we're basically jumping in where we left off last week. So let's dive right into the minute of transparency. Um, I'm calling this my personal deconstruction round two. So last week, like I said, we defined what deconstruction is, right? And in the minute of transparency last week, I started with some of the more basic things that we deconstruct in life. Things that we learn growing up, like which car manufacturer is the best, what sports teams to watch, what forms of clothing are acceptable and which aren't, if tattoos are good or bad. All of those things that you pick up from your parents, either through osmosis or because they specifically taught you to believe that way. And then we spent a, a few minutes talking about my religious upbringing, right? The fact that I was raised Seventh-day Adventist and that it came with a lot of traditional Christian values, do's and don'ts that basically came directly from the finger of God, right? <laughs> through, through the Bible. And on top of those things, there were also some pretty unique beliefs, right? Things that even other Christian kids would find strange, like going to church on Saturday instead of Sunday, uh, basically observing the Jewish Sabbath, uh, having pretty specific food or drug or alcohol restrictions, and then believing in a fairly unique version of Bible prophecy. And at some point, I was forced to decide for myself right? Am I going to stay Seventh-day Adventist or am I going to do some deconstruction? Call it individuation or deconstruction, whatever you want to call it, but the end result was the same. I started doing research for myself, which led to some doubts, some questions, and eventually some changes in the way that I viewed the world. So some of the things that I believed without question became things that I held a little bit more loosely. And some of the things that weren't part of my belief system at all were actually incorporated into it. Around that time, I moved away from attending SDA churches. I began attending larger, non-denominational churches in the area. At the time, you could summarize my deconstruction in the following way. I moved from me to we. So when I look back, my entire upbringing had been focused inward, on myself. My religious experience was all about my knowledge, my beliefs, my thinking, my behaving, right? It was very individualistic. I was constantly aware of my sinful behavior and how I was always missing the mark. And I was always working to make sure that I was right with God, constantly praying, confessing my sins, asking God to help me be a better person. And when I moved away from that SDA culture, everything shifted. I started to understand that I was loved by God and that accepting his free gift of grace was a one-time thing. I was saved, and that was supposed to be a freeing experience, not a bunch of balls and chains attached to you moving forward. 
So this was something that changed me as a person, right? Allowing me to focus my efforts outward, outside of myself. It allowed me to see that we're all in this together and that putting others first is really the goal in life. But like I said, this change didn't happen overnight and it didn't stop the minute I came to this new realization because deconstruction is a process that continues on. Which brings me to round two. And I'm going to just call this deconstructing big church. So my wife and I met when I was in the middle of this kind of first wave of deconstruction, right? In fact, I think I was probably going to the SDA church when we were dating. But at some point, we were invited to Granger Community Church by a friend, and we became regulars. From that point on, it was Granger, then eventually Mariners, and more recently, Friends Church. And like I said, these were all large, non-denominational churches that followed a very tried-and-true formula, one that seems to be popular and successful in most progressive countries. But especially here in this country, where capitalism is the rule of the day, right? And there's a big focus on the individual, what he or she wants or likes. And most have a larger-than-life lead pastor, often a bit narcissistic. Like I said, it's a formula, and it works. And at the beginning, I bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, we attended GCC. We started volunteering on the uh, different teams that were available at the church. Uh, eventually, I was uh, spending some time volunteering for the communications team, and eventually I was hired as the web director. And for quite a few years, I could say I was all in. It was a great run, doing church every weekend, raising our kids in the church, developing a small group of friends that we did life with. And when I look back, I smile because it all seems so pure, so innocent. Most of us were very young but, and we were driven, right? It was a growing church with a seeker-sensitive focus. We were known in the area. I mean, we were probably known around the country at that point, right? We were a very innovative church and we were kind of leading the way in this process. Uh, we held annual conferences where we shared our ideas with other church leaders and everything just felt right until it didn't. In 2007, there was a little glitch in the matrix, right? This thing called the Great Recession. And it lasted for a couple of years. And it really did damage to not only the country, but especially our little part of the country, the Midwest. In fact, Elkhart, Indiana is considered the epicenter of that recession. Elkhart is the RV capital of the world. And during a recession, the last thing people are thinking about is buying things like RVs. Needless to say, the recession hit the church hard as well. The whole up-and-to-the-right thing that we'd seen for years and years and years came to a screeching halt, along with our plans to expand and continue building new buildings. Everything just stalled out, including the vision for our future. Eventually, some of our top-level level leaders left the church and moved on to greener pastures, and when that happened, everything just stopped. A hold was put on all projects until we were able to determine the new vision for the church. But unfortunately, this took way too long. Years, in fact. For 18 months at the end there, we were doing this process called StratOps. Um, it's this process where you walk through all of these um, questionnaires and these little tools that help you determine what next steps are. And we walked through that process as a church, as a department, as a team all the while compiling all of this data to help us determine what we should do next. And this was probably the last straw for me. I told Tammy at that point, 
like, I don't need to be here anymore. I don't need this job the way that it's currently running. For years, I had pushed back with her on this about changing jobs or moving because I had felt called to be at Granger, but not anymore. This led to us looking at other options, and eventually we moved our family to Southern California. And this is where the whole big church thing really became obvious. Now, I took a job at Mariner's Church in a role very similar to what I did at Granger. And before I took the job, people told me that this was a very unique church. Morale was very low. The staff culture was terrible. So I really came in with my eyes wide open, and I was ready to be part of the solution. I had big dreams. I wanted to help pull a struggling culture up and pull it to the next level. But unfortunately, this never happened. I loved the communications team that I got to work with. But despite our best efforts, we were pretty much powerless in our effort to raise the morale and change the negative trajectory that existed at the church. Now, I've told this story in other episodes, so I'll just summarize it quickly. But at some point, I was let go very suddenly, along with another woman on on the team. And both of our positions were quickly filled with younger, cheaper labor. About a year later, my wife was let go from her position in a very similar way, under similar circumstances. And around that time, there was a transition of leadership, something that many of us, many of the staff had looked forward to, hoping that it would actually bring better days and and a new vision for the church. But unfortunately, things just went from bad to worse. At this point, I think more staff have left the church than are still there. Sad situation. And this was a huge, huge piece of my story, right? This is This went a long way in changing the way that I looked at the church in general, especially big church. Throw in the COVID pandemic and the way many churches behaved during those years, throw in the very big public church failures like Mars Hill and Hillsong, and that about did it for me. And this basically pushed me into what I call round two of my deconstruction journey. Now, in the last section, I called deconstruction an ongoing process or an ongoing journey. So you could say, on the one hand, that it's just more of the same. I just kept deconstructing. But I really fleshed it out as round one and round two because I feel like round two brought a whole new set of struggles. In round one, I moved from one set of religious beliefs to another, from a very conservative and legalistic worldview to one that was more progressive and loving. But in round two, I literally started questioning the whole concept of church, the people, the leadership, the lies, the way the church has become so focused on the business side of things. I didn't really feel that while I was working at Granger. But looking back, I can see that the formula was there as well. And at Mariners, there was no question. It was all business all the time. In fact, the leadership of the church, the executive pastor, the elders, many of the executive leadership team were all from the business sector. And it showed in the way that they viewed success, in the way that they treated their staff team. It was just a fast moving business that chewed people up and spit them out. Now, just like last week, this doesn't have a nice tidy ending, right? I can't tell you exactly what I've deconstructed and what that means for my future. Just as round one was an ongoing journey, so too, round two is still going. And the best I can do is to list some of the things that I struggled through and some of the things that I'm struggling with even now. Things like going to church. 
I definitely struggle with this. The whole idea of organized religion, especially when it reaches the level of megachurch status, I'm having a really hard time seeing the heart behind the ministry. It's too business-minded, too rigid, too cliche in the way that it's presented. So I just haven't been going as often. Number two, church motives. So based on my story and my wife's story, recent research that I've done, and watching other churches from the outside, it's getting harder and harder and harder to trust that people's motives are pure. Many churches are moving toward a political worldview that it's their job to support and promote religion in politics. And many of the churches staying out of politics seem to be more interested in the number of people attending and the amount of money that can be brought in off of a large congregation. Number three, statements of faith. Most churches provide a document called their statement of beliefs or statement of faith, where they list all of their big topics, right? All of the big things and the stances that they take on them. Everything from what they believe about God, the Trinity, discipleship, what's required to be a leader. And these days, it's been very difficult for me to reconcile some of these due to the exclusivity that many of them create almost telegraphing to the average person. If you don't look this way or behave this way, you probably won't be welcome here. Number four, church culture. This has been one of the hardest things for me lately. Back in the day, somebody could walk up to me and say something like, hey, brother, how has life been treating you this week? Has God been faithful in meeting you at the front door of your strongholds? Right? I would have winced a little bit, but I would have given them the benefit of the doubt. Today, I almost want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. I think back to some of the stereotypical church culture that I was okay with, and I can't believe I was okay with it. The t-shirts, the bumper stickers, the jargon, the cult-like behavior. And then there were times where there was just this like overarching sense of positivity, like, oh, everything's great, everything's all good, and everyone's walking around, you know, talking about how wonderful everything is. And then you reach a place in time like today, right? With the pandemic and the political polarization and racism. And you start to look at the world around you and it's like, no, it's not okay. Yes, God brings a level of peace and joy. But at the same time, you must acknowledge that the world is a mess. Number five, closed-mindedness specifically to science. So the older I get, the easier it is for me to spot the ultra-religious and their unwillingness to even allow science into the conversation. Fundamentalist Christians that believe that religion is one worldview and science is a complete opposite, and that the two have nothing in common. Even though our world can be described in scientific terms, languages like mathematics, chemistry, physics, and the overlap is amazing. But by polarizing the two, we make Christianity look that much more like a cult. And those were just the first five things that came to my mind. When I look at them on paper, I feel like they only scratch the surface of what's been going on my in my head in this round of the deconstruction process. But for now, they'll do, right? Because they start to tell the deconstruction story that's going on inside of me. Today's topic, Transcendent Deconstruction Part 2 the indoctrination, enlightenment, deconstruction cycle. Obviously, we're going to talk about indoctrination, enlightenment, and deconstruction. And then we're going to wrap things up with the cycle repeats. Number one, indoctrination. Now, I know this term probably has a very negative energy behind it, right? Similar to me using the word brainwashing. 
But at the end of the day, I don't want us to be afraid to use it or be afraid of the fact that it exists and that it's a very real thing that every single one of us goes through. Dictionary.com defines indoctrination as the act of indoctrinating, shocker, or teaching or inculcating a doctrine, principle, or ideology, especially one with a specific point of view, as in religious indoctrination. Interesting that the example they chose to use was religious indoctrination. But at the same time, this should make sense because the root word of indoctrination is doctrine which is a very religious word, right? Pertaining to the specific beliefs that a religious institution adheres to. But for now, let's just pull out the general attributes. So to indoctrinate is to teach someone something. However, the teaching is very specific to one point of view. Now, what I want to do next is to help us see that there is a continuum that exists within indoctrination. There are forms of indoctrination that most of us are okay with, And there are forms that we would consider sinister, dangerous, and even evil. But at the end of the day, they're all the same because people are being taught something from a very specific point of view. So let's just take a look at some of these in general terms, moving from simple to more complex, from acceptable to a little more unacceptable. So let's start with parenting. What is parenting if not indoctrination, right? Most parents have a very specific worldview, and that worldview is passed on to their kids. We call it parenting, but at the end of the day, it's a form of indoctrination, even brainwashing. But as long as we're teaching them socially acceptable things and they become positive members of society, it's all good. It's okay. Our brainwashing is deemed useful and appropriate. Now, Obviously, the opposite is also true. If we teach our kids antisocial behavior and they grow up to become serial killers, we're going to be viewed in a slightly different light. And at that point, terms like indoctrination or brainwashing will have a much more negative connotation. Next, let's talk about coaching. So interestingly enough, coaching is indoctrination, right? A coach, typically someone who has played or studied the game on some level, teaches kids everything that they need to know about the sport from a very specific point of view. Here are a few of those points of view to jog your memory. Winning is everything, so do whatever it takes. The team is more important than the individual. Learn something new every time you play. Now, there are as many of these mantras as there are coaches. But you get the idea, right? This is the motto that precedes the indoctrination. In other words, if this is the singular point of view, then everything that that coach does is run through that filter. In other words, everything that happens in practice, the way that the games are played, and even what you may do away from the game, right? What you do as a team, if you do uh, team dinners or... um, anything like that, right? It's all run through the filter that that coach has. And you can see how that might play out in the way that the coach talks to the kids, what is said to parents, and what the team even does together as a team. Again, most of us are okay with this form of indoctrination until, of course, a coach fails to let your kid play, or if they start cussing your child out for not working hard enough, then things start to change a little bit, right? Next up, we have education. 
Don't think teachers indoctrinate our kids? Oh my. If you don't, you have your head under a pillow, choosing not to see the obvious. On the one hand, teachers are indoctrinating our kids with knowledge, right? Important knowledge about things like reading, writing, and arithmetic. They have a very specific point of view. It's called core competency or whatever it's called in your state. But at the end of the day, their job depends on whether or not their kids are learning things in the classroom, in those areas, right? But this is a very small part of our kids' school day. They interact with other teachers, principals, custodians, gym teachers, and each of those people and each of those interactions are added to our kids' base of knowledge. Here's an example. In elementary school, our kids went on field trips, um, and one of the field trips our kids went on was to this place called the Planetarium. Uh, It was a shared resource that all of the elementary schools in our district could access. And while the kids were there, they learned fun facts from the teacher that oversaw the planetarium. And on one of these trips, the teacher explained to my kids that the only reason we have pretty sunsets is because of the way we pollute the earth. That all of the pollution in the air that we kick up during the day provides the particles necessary to reflect the light coming from the setting sun. Now, I'm sure that this teacher meant well, right? And I'm sure that pollutants do influence what type of a sunset you see from night to night. But I don't think the teacher explained that a sunset is beautiful no matter what. So to this day, when we see a beautiful sunset, our kids will laugh and say, thank God for pollution. Now, we've obviously processed this as a family and we can look back and laugh at it. But this is a perfect example of the way our kids can be indoctrinated in the school setting, which is why there is so much polarization right now in our country when it comes to what's being taught in school. But I digress. That is not why we're here today. Next, we have the military. Again, one of those things that we accept as necessary, but at the same time, we cringe a little bit when we hear how things really work because the military is an indoctrination machine. Just look at the orientation that a young person gets when they join. First of all, most of the people entering the military are kids right out of high school, right? And according to the field of psychology, these boys and girls aren't even fully baked yet. According to an article by the National Library of Medicine and the National Institutes of Health, the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until age 25. Why is this important? Because the prefrontal cortex controls the following executive function, decision-making, planning complex cognitive behavior, personality expression, moderating social behavior, differentiating between conflicting thoughts, determining good and bad, better and best, same and different. And according to one article, the consequence of this not being formed correctly is often socially unacceptable behavior. So these kids with the prefrontal cortexes still in the oven are then thrown into the indoctrination process. And according to an article put out by the APA, this involves three things. First, removing characteristics that are detrimental to the military. So those are things like self-interest and making decisions based on what you know to be right or wrong. Number two, to train individuals to kill when necessary. And number three, to enable recruits to view themselves in collective terms. So viewing themselves as part of a machine. It's we versus me. 
And like I said, the military has this down to a science. All you need to do is talk to people who have come out of boot camp and they will explain to you how this process worked, how they were brought in, they were beat down until there was nothing left, and then they were built back up to believe in things like the collective, to believe in following orders and that it's not right to question all of the hierarchical things that are required to make the military function successfully. Next, we have religion. So this one is a very personal one for me, obviously. I said I was raised in a traditional Christian home, and while I wouldn't change that for the world, I can also look back and I can see that it was full-on indoctrination and that not all of it was good. Not all of it was right. Religious indoctrination happens all the time, every day, all over the world to people of all ages, right? It isn't just something you experience as a kid when you're growing up in a family of origin. There are college students who get involved in programs like YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and this whole process begins for them as as adolescents. And then there are grown adults who go to church for the first time and start a process of indoctrination at that point in their life. And that can be healthy and it can be unhealthy at the same time. On the one hand, right, getting in touch with your spiritual side is a good thing. It typically helps you become a better version of yourself. But on the other hand, spirituality can easily become religion, which can become rigid, intolerant, and exclusive. And we can see this across the spectrum, right? When you look at Christianity, right? See how it's been morphed into something these days that we almost don't even recognize, right? With Christian nationalism. Think about Judaism with its many customs, traditions, and legalistic requirements. Islam which has been radicalized by some, leading to things like terrorism and violence. And then there's the ancient world religions, right, that incorporated things like human sacrifice into their belief systems. And then you've got the more heady religious beliefs like Stoicism, Buddhism, uh, and similar religions that focus on depriving yourself of things, right? The idea that happiness is actually the problem because it never satisfies you. And that the endless search for happiness is really why we suffer in the first place. So you can see how growing up in or becoming involved in religion on some level is indoctrination. Each has a very specific worldview, and it teaches you that worldview the way it's believed in that culture. And this can be loosely taught, right? Allowing the person to kind of find their own way and leave if they want. And then it can be very forced, right? Leading people to believe that there is no way to get out. This is often what we refer to as a cult, but you can even see it in mainstream religions, right? The Catholic Church, along with some others, believe in this thing called excommunication. It's the act of removing or banishing somebody who does not go along with the teachings of the church. Similarly, in Mormonism, right? People are excommunicated when they question the church, which leads to complete detachment from the people they love, even close family members. And these are examples of religious indoctrination coupled with manipulation and coercion, which makes it even harder to leave. Again, this was the real reason behind the Transcendent Deconstruction series, and we'll dive more into that in the weeks to come. But let's finish up with an extreme example of indoctrination, right? So we can see that in the Nazi movement in Germany. History tells us that the Nazi regime, led by Adolf Hitler, was built on ideas of indoctrination brainwashing, radicalization, propaganda, induced fear. The German people were led through Nazi boot camp on some level. Similar to the military, they were stripped down, 
taught hate and sold the solution that if we are to survive, we must remove everyone else in our way. This led to one of the most significant instances of genocide that the world has ever seen. The Holocaust was the tangible result of this indoctrination, high-level indoctrination um, of an entire people group who robotically and blindly followed the crowd. Number two, enlightenment. So now that we understand the indoctrination spectrum, uh, the, the continuum that exists from simple indoctrination all the way up to intense and manipulative indoctrination, we're able to move to the next piece, which is enlightenment. And when we move to enlightenment, we move into this strange world, one that is really difficult to quantify on some level. Here's what I mean. When it comes to our locus of control, indoctrination is something that definitely happens to us. Deconstruction is definitely something that we control, something that we do and we engage in. But enlightenment is right in the middle, and it's not that simple. So where does it start? How does it happen? Where does it come from? How long does it stay? Is it a feeling? Is it an emotion? Is it a calling? A nudge? Is it something or someone outside of ourselves pushing us to think about the indoctrination that we endured? Now, when I picked the word enlightenment, it wasn't because it was the right word. I just liked it, right? I could have called it an awakening or something like that. But because I called it enlightenment, we should probably define the word. So dictionary.com defines enlightenment as, aside from being a period of time in the 18th century, it's the act of being enlightened, duh, uh, which means to give intellectual or spiritual light to, to instruct or impart knowledge to, or to shed light upon. So based on this definition, when we start to think about or apply spiritual concepts to our indoctrination, we move into the enlightenment phase. Now, we're still operating under the indoctrination that we went through, but we start to question. We start to realize that something is off. Maybe what we were taught wasn't 100% correct, or possibly we misunderstood what we were taught and we created a belief that isn't based in reality. Okay, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but just understand that there is a step between indoctrination and deconstruction. It's the point where we have a thought that blows our mind, a thought, a question, a doubt, and it doesn't go away. It forces us to keep thinking about it until it has been resolved. In the movie The Truman Show, right, this, this isn't the point where he opens the door on the other side of the ocean and leaves his lifelong prison. Instead, it's the first time Truman sees something that doesn't make sense, something that doesn't add up. A homeless man that looks a lot like his dead father. A love interest that tries to warn him. A studio light that falls from the sky. All things that made an impression on Truman to the point where he could no longer avoid the questions in his head, and he had to figure out the truth. This was the process of enlightenment, and it's the same for us. When it comes to religious enlightenment, it's when you start asking, why? Why do I believe this? Do I actually believe this? Why does what my parents taught me actually conflict with what my friend's pastor taught her? And the questions go on and on. Why did my parents teach me that the flood in the Bible was a real thing, but science is saying that the flood couldn't possibly happen the way it happened? This is the enlightenment process. The minute you realize that there is a disconnect between the things that you were taught and the reality that's being presented to you in the future. Number three, 
deconstruction. So the next piece of the puzzle is obvious. It's deconstruction. Like we said earlier, this is when the locus of control fully switches to us. Indoctrination happens to us. Deconstruction is how we respond. So deconstruction is our response to the things that we were taught in the past, our struggle to determine if we still believe them or not. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here today as well, because next week we're going to do a full episode on religious deconstruction and how politics is quickly becoming part of the same conversation. Then, in part four, we're going to walk through the stages of deconstruction. So stay tuned for that. There's a lot more to come on the deconstruction piece of it. Number four, the cycle repeated. Now, I thought it would be interesting to finish up this episode with a theory of mine. So my theory is that the indoctrination, enlightenment, deconstruction cycle is a very real thing and has been repeated over and over and over throughout time, both in small ways, like when adolescents and young adults start questioning the things that their parents taught them about life, but also in very big ways, like entire civilizations having to come to terms with their collective indoctrination. And my big hypothesis is this, that the deconstruction movement that we're seeing across the world today could be one of those big ones, right? Depending on how close we are to the end of time, it very well could be the last one. Now that's very ominous, I know. So let's just put a pin in that and let's look back at some of the other big ones that have happened throughout time. Let's start with Adam and Eve. So the first inhabitants on earth went through this cycle in a very strange way. On some level, they were indoctrinated with perfection, right? Everything in their world was good. It was perfect. Then Satan, after being thrown down from heaven, appeared to them as a serpent and enlightened them, right? Which made them question God. Then, as part of the deconstruction process, Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the forbidden tree. Now, we'll talk more about this in uh, other episodes, but just know that Adam and Eve went through the process of indoctrination, enlightenment, and then deconstruction. Next, let's talk about Jonah. Jonah was indoctrinated to believe that there were good people and there were bad people, and that the bad people should just be left to their own devices. At some point, God enlightened him that the bad people of Nineveh meant something to him, and they were worth saving. Jonah spent a few nights in the belly of a whale. Eventually, he completed his task of going to Nineveh and warning them for God. Then he watched as God chose to save the city. After seeing all of this, Jonah had to deconstruct his former beliefs and recognize that God loves all people. Next, you have the people of Nineveh. Right? So imagine being part of a culture in Nineveh. These people were called Assyrians, and they had some beliefs which led to some pretty inappropriate behavior. They were very ruthless and very violent. However, the Bible suggests that the king was enlightened by Jonah. And because of this, he began the process of deconstructing the life that he'd been living. At some point, he even led the entire city through the deconstruction process. And God honored that change and saved the city. In stark contrast to the city of Sodom, which the Bible describes as being destroyed by God because of the wickedness that existed there. Next, let's talk Israelites or the children of Israel. So the Bible describes how the people of God went through numerous cycles like this, 
each time they would start to get away from God and his truth, they would then start to incorporate the beliefs of the cultures around them, pagan cultures, most of them. And then, no doubt, they would indoctrinate their kids with these new hybrid ideas. Then God would send them a prophet. And what would the prophet do? He would enlighten them about how far they had moved away from God. Then the Israelites would eventually heed the warning of the prophet and go through the deconstruction process they'd been living under. And unfortunately, this cycle would repeat itself over and over and over every few generations. And at some point in this process, the Israelite people or the Jewish people were living on earth when Jesus came to earth, right? And they had the same beliefs, but over time they had created so many rules that it had become almost overwhelming for the people of the faith to follow all of the rules. They also had a system of animal sacrifice, which was the way that they could be forgiven for missing the mark on all of these laws. In fact, to this day, the Jewish community holds on to 613 of these laws as accurate and binding. This was their indoctrination, something that God started but was greatly expanded upon by men. Enter Jesus. He was born into the Jewish culture, and he began his ministry on earth immediately. And what did he do? He enlightened people toward a new way of living. Some heard this and believed. Others remained steadfast in the Jewish traditions. When Jesus died on the cross and it became clear what his mission had been, the Jewish people who had followed him had to do major deconstruction in order to bring their indoctrination into alignment with the things that Jesus taught. This deconstruction movement was the birth of Christianity. Speaking of Christianity, this is where it gets interesting. As Christians, I believe that we have followed the same path as the Jewish people. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in Jesus, which means I believe in the Christian religion, the one that Jesus started, of course. But I believe that for the last 2,000 years, we've been doing the same things that the Jewish people did. We've been watering it down. We've been mixing in pagan ideas. We've been adding rules and restrictions and exclusivity that never even existed. And this exclusivity feels really good to some people. But at the same time, it alienates so many others. And this is really the point we're at right now. This is the craziness of Christian nationalism, which sounds a lot like previous civilizations that persecuted people for not believing the same way that they do. And this is our indoctrination. But I believe that at some point in in the recent past, people started to be enlightened, which has led to a massive deconstruction movement within modern Christianity. I believe that this is us right now, today. At least that's my hypothesis. And with most things like this, I believe there's often good news and bad news. So let's talk good news. Because like the Jews, we have added all sorts of religious things to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus. And in order to get back to that simplicity, we need to deconstruct. If we're going to fully live out the life that he called us to, we probably need to strip away all of the superfluous stuff, and just get back to the things that matter. The bad news, simply put, deconstruction is a slippery slope, right? Most people start with good intentions, but at some point you can find yourself sliding even past the point of truth. Instead of finding the truth and holding on to it, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. We get rid of Jesus, 
along with the rigid religious beliefs that we are deconstructing. Okay, one final thing, and this may step on a few toes, but that's fine with me. As I was doing the research for this series, I couldn't help but see a glaring illustration of the way that the Bible was constructed. Hear me out. I think that the Bible is a physical illustration of the deconstruction process. Literally. I mean, it is physically broken into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God is very rigid, fundamental, legalistic. And this was the indoctrination that people who lived prior to Jesus received. Then you have the break between the two, right? Between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the New Testament, what does Jesus do? He deconstructs the Old Testament. The entire New Testament is Jesus changing things up, making it obvious that there is a new way to do things. He says things like, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. You've had strict laws against murder, but I say, don't have hatred in your heart. Let's learn to love one another. Jesus deconstructed all of the hundreds of Jewish laws down into two. Love God and love each other. How is that for deconstruction? In fact, I can't find a more obvious reason to deconstruct or a model for how to do it that's better than this. Let's land the plane. Part two in the can. Thank you so much for joining us. We're well on our way. Three episodes to go. This week, ask yourself the following questions. So do you feel like you have been indoctrinated in your past? If so, you're in good company because most of us were. But what are these things, right? What were you indoctrinated in and how um, how bad does it impact your life? Number two, have you been enlightened at some point? If so, when did that happen? How did it happen? Was it a feeling? Was it something you read? Was it friends asking you questions? And then finally, are there things that you've started to deconstruct? If so, how's it going? How are you feeling? What is it doing to your life as you work through your deconstruction process? Now, deconstruction is challenging on so many levels, and I'm by no means an expert, right? By no stretch of the imagination. Um, But if you're going through a rough patch, reach out. Let us know what you're going through because we're all in this together. You can email us at info at transcendhuman.com or we're also on TikTok at transcendhuman. Uh, You can comment there or message us through that app. Um, Whatever works for you. Next week, we dive into part three, politics and religious deconstruction. Until then, everyone, have a great week. And as always, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.